Good morning, church. It's another privilege and a joy to be here and to be able to open God's Word with you. So let's do that together right now. Open to John chapter 20, and I'm going to read verses 11 to 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we are here this morning. We are your people. You are the one who is holding us. You hold us fast. We are in your hand this morning, and so we ask that you would do your work again in our lives. We pray that you would open up your word to us and that your spirit would speak through your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. There's a story that is told about how the people of Britain received the news of the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo, where the Duke of Wellington fought on their behalf. Now, without email or even Morse code at the time, they relied on a a semaphore system, a system of, of flag signals in order for news to spread quickly through the country. And so a ship came to the coast where there was a a semaphore station at Winchester Cathedral. The message flashed slowly from the ship, letter by letter, Wellington defeated. And right at that last word, a fog came over the coast and shrouded the message so that it couldn't be seen anymore. But this message of defeat quickly spread throughout the countryside, and with it, sorrow and despair filled the hearts of the people. Well, eventually that fog lifted, and the full message was seen. Four words, not just two. Wellington defeated the enemy. Sorrow immediately turned to joy, and defeat was swallowed up in victory. Now, If that story sounds far-fetched to you, it did to me too, and I checked it out, and it's completely bogus. (laughs) 
what isn't bogus, but rather is backed by an abundance of historical evidence is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And on Good Friday, the message apparent to the disciples was those two words, Jesus defeated. But a couple days later, on Easter Sunday, as the sun rose, a new message, Jesus defeated the enemy. In our study in the, the Gospel of John, we've considered the resurrection account. We did it two weeks ago on Easter Sunday, and John now continues in his purpose in providing reason for your faith, reason for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he does this by showing the impact that the resurrection should have on the believer's life. And he does it by showing the impact that it had on the disciples. The pattern is the same for them. The followers embroiled in some kind of human emotion at their loss. For Mary, she is filled with sorrow. The disciples are locked away, filled with fear. And Thomas is filled with doubting. And yet Jesus appears to each, and that encounter for each would be life-changing. The weeper is made joyful witness. The fearful are made those who are sent with a message. And the doubter becomes the declarer of his glory. Such is the power of the resurrection. Jesus is alive. And that is a message that changes everything. And what you make of that claim will affect your eternal future. Remember what he had spoken to Martha in John 11, 25 and 26. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? As we begin this post-resurrection journey, John has an offer for you and for me today to meet and to know and see Jesus Christ as certainly as Mary who saw him in the garden. And today, I believe the offer is three-part for us, evident in this passage. It is an offer, firstly, the resurrection of hope, then of belonging, and then commission. Originally, when I sent the points out to Keith, I had mission, but I realized hope, belonging, commission is HBC, so it's easier for you to remember. Number one, hope. Tradition has, has it in the early church that Mary Magdalene is the first disciple to see Jesus risen from the grave. And from my study this week, trying to harmonize all the gospel accounts, I believe this is a, a reasonable assumption, that he appeared first to Mary and then to the other woman, and they all bring report to the disciples. Now, in one sense, it's amazing, isn't it? that he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. In a, a big sense, it's amazing that he appeared first to the woman. If, if you were writing this account as a false report, trying to um, falsify testimony, if you were making this up in the first century, you wouldn't, you wouldn't write this. You wouldn't start with him appearing to the woman. 
the testimony of women would not have held up. It was not admissible in the court of law. But the gospel writers all alike are alike in giving honor to these women, these devoted women as the first to witness the risen Christ. And then Jesus appears not to his mother Mary or to Mary of Bethany or to Martha, but to Mary Magdalene. She didn't have a squeaky clean background, did she? The Gospel of Luke tells us that she had had seven demons and that she had been freed from that. Now, there's nothing, I believe, in the Bible that um, confirms the Catholic tradition that she was also a prostitute. But we can guess at the fact that she was demonized in this way, that her past was, at the very least, spiritually troubled. Jesus had rescued her from a life of the horrible effects of sin. But in that sense, who better? Who better to be here to see the Lord on this day? Right? The gospel is for Mary. The gospel is for Mary Magdalene. Who would have been more grieved at the loss of him? He for, who, who worked such power in her life. Who else would have um, loved him more than Mary? Who else would we expect to see lingering at the tomb, the first to rise on this day to be at the tomb and the last to leave? Who else would have had greater need than to see the risen Lord? And I believe such is just the compassionate heart of our Savior. The first thing we see him do in appearing to the disciples is bring comfort to this woman in her hour of need. And who better really to bring the first report? This is what the gospel does. The gospel, when it changes your life, when it brings about a sense of deep gratitude for what Jesus has done, it is these who speak, is it not? Those who are grateful for the cross are those who speak of the glory of Christ. This is the pattern we see in Jesus he did it before in, in John chapter 4. Who was the first preacher to the Samaritans? It was another woman with a checkered past for whom the truth about Jesus had transfused a life of pain with a new and real hope. This is what the gospel does. Creates preachers for the gospel. There is something to be said about where we see Mary on this day. Paul says to the church in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And in Mary, what we see is a faith and a hope initially crushed. Don't we see it? Filled with sadness and despair, she's weeping. The word actually means wailing uncontrollably over her loss. But there is still one thing that remains powerfully in her heart, and that is love. Even now, she loves, though it is a, a love without hope. But it reveals what Jesus meant to her. Others have scattered. We know Jesus soon will appear to, to two on the road to Emmaus, headed in the wrong direction, away from Jerusalem, dejected and ready to give up. Uh, to, to give up. 
But even though Jesus has been killed and Mary's hope has, is gone, she isn't going anywhere. Where would she go? She doesn't have anywhere else to go. Jesus is her home. She has known all along in following him how necessary he is for life. She would agree and repeat what Peter had said in John chapter 6. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so we see Mary's love even now. And her unwillingness to leave the tomb ought to be a sharp rebuke to many in the church today. Mary's actions are a sign of how deeply her hopes had been set in Jesus Christ. Now we live this side of the resurrection. And yet I ask you, where have you invested your hope? Where are you pouring, to, into what are you pouring your life? For so many, even in the church and possibly even here today, Jesus is not really your home. Maybe he's just a hotel for the weekend. You pour your life into many things. You put your hope into many things. But the things of the Lord, and to him, perhaps not so much. You need to learn from Mary today. She lingers and her love and desire is rewarded. Let's read verses 11 to 13 together. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. What was amazing for me is that of, of all the people who see angels in and around the tomb, Mary seems not to notice that they are angels. I don't know if she knew whether or not they were. They were dressed in white. Um, Luke says they were, wore dazzling white. But she seems undeterred and simply wanting to find his body and, and seems to be missing what is happening. Now, whatever the reason for her lack of clarity, still we see in her words this vulnerability and her state, they have taken my Lord. And it is right upon speaking these words that she becomes aware that somebody else is around. So verse 14 and 15, having said this, she turned and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And so we see for the first time in John's gospel, Jesus is alive again. And he has come to bring comfort to Mary. John MacArthur comments on this passage. He says, She lingered at the tomb, hoping to find him dead. He lingered at the tomb, waiting to show himself to her alive. She lingered out of love. He lingered out of love. We see the mirth, I believe, of the Savior in repeating the question that the angels had asked. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And in all four Gospels, we see this reference to the seeking of the woman and this kind of a response. What are you hoping to find in the empty tomb. 
Now this question is a compassionate reproof. It's a gentle rebuke. Mary's mistaken assumption that they have taken away his body must give way now to the truth. She is like Hagar in the, de- in the desert, weeping, though there is a well of water nearby, if her eyes could be opened to see it. Open your eyes, Mary. See who it is who stands before you. And let your love be accompanied again by hope and faith. And what about you today? Are they all yours? Faith, hope, and love. Do you love the dying Savior? And is your love infused with an unshakable hope because he has conquered the grave? Sin's payment has been made and sin's power over your life has been broken. He died for your trespasses and was raised for your justification. Is this the hope that you carry today? Because that hope ought to shade your life. It should shade your sorrow. And we know that sorrow is a part of life. Christianity is not the same as Stoicism, in in which we think that we've risen above pain and risen above sorrow. There's plenty to be sorrowful, even this morning. There's plenty to be grieved about. But ours, the Apostle Paul says, is a grief that is not without hope. Our grief grief is tinged with joy because we know, even now, as the ones from time to time who weep, that our tears will all be wiped away. Is this your hope today? And I, I say this because I know my heart. I know my own heart that I'm so slow to be shaped by resurrection truth. I'm timid when I ought to be bold, I'm depressed when I ought to be joyful, and I'm certainly anxious when I ought to have peace. I ought to be steadfast in my knowledge. Jesus is alive. He loves me. He's coming back for me. And my labor is not in vain in the Lord. Maybe for you today, it's not that you struggle to believe that the tomb is empty. Maybe it's not belief in the resurrection that is your problem. Maybe it's believing that that hope of the resurrection actually applies to your life. That He really loves you. You say, I I don't know where I would have been on that day, but I don't think I would have been with Mary lingering at the tomb. And that's no different for me. If any of the disciples represents me in these post-resurrection accounts, it's not Mary, it would be Thomas. That is where my heart goes. Skepticism and doubt. But we come back to the truth today, the truth that we know that His love for us is not a measured response to the strength or the fortitude of our hearts but is secured by His sacrifice on our behalf. He cried, it is finished. That sacrifice is unrepeatable. And just, by the way, I, I, don't, I want to be very careful in, in mentioning this. I don't want to say this is what John wants us to see, but he was very particular in what he presents in the tomb and what Mary saw. Two angels, one at the head and one at the foot, 
Scholars say this reminds us of something that we see in the Old Testament. When in Exodus 25, God gives instructions for the Ark of the Covenant to be built. The Ark that would sit in the Holy of Holies, where Israel would meet with God. Do you remember what was on top of that Ark? On top was a slab, the mercy seat. And crafted on that mercy seat were two angels, two cherubim facing one another. It was sure that Yahweh would meet with the people. The high priest would come into the holy place with the blood of the sacrifice, and that blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, thus making atonement for sin. Well, Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, similar to the symbolism of the veil being torn in two, Mary walks into the tomb, certainly no high priest, and yet mercy and presence are hers. And they are ours this morning. Is this your hope? His mercy, His presence, a hope of the resurrection. Charles Spurgeon tells a story of a woman who came to him for help during his first pastorate. And she came to him with anguish of soul. She felt no hope, no assurance of her salvation. And she said, I just feel all the time as if I'm a hypocrite. So Spurgeon, tongue-in-cheek, knowing well the woman, said to her, well, perhaps you ought to stop coming to church. We don't want any hypocrites here. Why do you come at all? And she replied, I, I cannot stay away. I love the Lord's people. I love the house of the Lord. I love to worship God. To which he replied, well, you're a very peculiar type of hypocrite and unconverted woman you are. Right? She possessed this desire for belonging. She wanted body and soul to belong to Christ, to belong to His church, even though at times she wrestled and struggled with assurance. The hope of the resurrection calls us not to rely on our own strength, but to trust in His finished work to redeem us. Is this your hope today? Secondly, in this passage, I believe on offer for us is belonging, belonging. Mary sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him at first. In verse 15, she thinks he's the gardener. Perhaps he's seen something, or perhaps he's taken the body away himself. So she says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, some have said maybe she didn't know it was Jesus because she had been crying so much and couldn't see clearly. I'm pretty sure there's more to it than that. It was not uncommon in the post-resurrection accounts for disciples not immediately to recognize that it was Jesus. We know that the two on the way to Emmaus walked with him. He spoke to them and taught them from the Old Testament. He sat down with them and ate with them, and only afterwards did they finally realize that it was Him. Luke 24, 16 says that they were kept from seeing Him. So there's this tension in the gospel accounts. On the one hand, He rose physically. We know that to be true. He invited Thomas, come and feel my scars. He, he cooked and ate fish with the disciples. And yet on the other hand, He rose through grave clothes and appeared behind locked doors. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 explains to us that he rose physically. 
but with a glorified body. So I believe perhaps that has something to do with it. And more than that, I think Jesus, this is just about his timing. Mary will see him for who he is when he opens up her eyes. And the way that he does it is one of the most tender um, and beautiful moments in John's gospel for me. He opens her eyes with one word in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, her familiar term for him. See, having asked her question, have you taken him somewhere? It seems that she's already turned back to the tomb. She's already turned away. And Jesus calls out to her, Mary, and light floods her heart. All she needed was to hear her name. Her heart knew the sound of her name on his lips. And with her name on his lips flooded into her heart a familiar warmth, the warmth of home. David Strain comments, he says, when he called her name, her eyes were opened. She was facing the wrong way, looking for the living among the dead in a dusty old tomb where Jesus was not. But at his call, she turns to him and grief is replaced with gladness and sorrow with celebration. And so just as in John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, so here we see an illustration of that truth. The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and they follow him because they know his voice. As with Mary, so with all of us, all who have heard their names spoken on his lips, tender but direct, compassionate, full with warmth, familiar, all those who recognize his voice. John Calvin in his commentary says, Thus in Mary we have a lively image of our own calling. For the only way in which we are admitted to the true knowledge of Christ is when he first knows us and then familiarly invites us to himself, not by that ordinary voice, which sounds indiscriminately in the ears of all, but by that voice with which he especially calls the sheep which the Father hath given to him. It is the personal call heard by those who gladly and wholeheartedly are claimed as his own, as belonging to him. The tone of his voice reveals his heart, that we are loved, a loved and cherished possession. Isaiah 43, verse 1 to 2, God says to Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Now, it is, it is a joy for me to serve this church. And as I get to know more of you more and more, your names take on new and familiar meaning in my heart. This week I had the privilege of um, sharing in the life of a family. I did a memorial service and in preparation for that memorial, on my heart strongly were the, the children who I knew were going to be there. And so I prayed for them by name that the mor memorial would have meaning for them, that it would accomplish something in their lives. And I felt this week a little bit 
closer to another family. Now, I, I love you all, but your names don't elicit the same visceral and emotional response in my heart as these names, Noah, Judah, Alyssa. Those names are different. The names of my, my own children. Those are the names that dominate my prayer life. So often that bring me to my knees where I cry out to the Lord as those given to my care, those for whom I am responsible, saying, God, help me, give me strength, save my children. Those are the names I would die for and fight for. And the prophet Isaiah says to you and to me, you are his. That's how the Father knows your name. That's how he knows your name. And he speaks Mary's name. And she responds in kind. She hears her name and responds accordingly. What about you? What about you? This is how he is calling you today. Have you heard? Have you heard his voice? Are you building your life on the truth of the fact that you belong to him? That you are not your own. You belong to Jesus Christ. Something interesting takes place in this passage. She apparently doesn't keep her distance from the Lord. Um, I, I believe she's fallen at his feet and she's clinging to him as we see the other woman do in Matthew's account. Clinging and holding on. He says in verse 17, Do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Mary has broken social distancing protocol, so Jesus rebukes her. No, but why does he say this? Why does he say these words? Do not cling to me. This is a hotly debated verse, but I, I think the, the primary answer is quite simple, and that John gives us context for how we are to understand this. Uh, on the first simple level, what we see here is Mary, who has once lost her Lord and now has him back again and doesn't ever want to lose him again. So she holds on for dear life. And Jesus is saying, you're not going to lose me, Mary. I'm not ascending now. Now is the time for joy and now is the time for you to go and proclaim to others. But on a, a deeper level, we see that he talks about his ascension. He will ascend. And when he does that, it's true that she will not be able to cling to him physically. But the truth remains that she will never lose him again. The ascension will mean greater distance physically speaking, but it won't actually mean greater distance from her Lord. Rather, what it comes with is a, a transformed relationship, a relationship with him through the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised to his disciples is actually better for them for this day and age. Remember what he had promised to them in chapters 14 to 16. I go to prepare a place and I will come again to take you to myself. But, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will make my home with you. And so he invites us. He says, abide in me and I in you. And actually says, it is to your advantage that I go. For I will send the Helper to you. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit even today. Where he makes the home of God the Father and God the Son in the life of the believer. He indwells us today. 
And Jesus' promise to us is, for right now, it's actually better that I ascend. Better than me physically being near to you right now is the Holy Spirit inside of you who works salvation, a new nature, new affections, and strength and hope and peace and joy in our lives. There is an emphasis in John's gospel on the magnitude of what we have in the gift of the Holy Spirit that must today cause us to question why so often we are indifferent to it, indifferent to this gift. Paul says we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that truth ought to allay our fears and transform our sorrows and spur us into mission. And so he sends Mary with this message in verse 17. Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, you remember in chapter 15, verse 15, what Jesus had said to the the disciples in the upper room, precious words he spoke to them. He said, no longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Those were precious words, but what will he call them now? Do friends, when trouble comes, desert him and disown him and flee? Because that's what they did. That's what Peter did. And yet he sends Mary and says, go to my brothers. My brothers. On December 9th, 1710, a Scottish Presbyterian minister named Thomas Boston was pacing his study, facing what was fairly common for him, a night of great spiritual doubt about his condition before Christ. And his daughter Jane, whom he had put to sleep and who had woken up, called out to him and for whatever reason had this message for him. She had obviously been taught from this passage recently and and had inferred something from it. And so she said to him, Mary Magdalene went to the sepulcher and there then she returned to the sepulcher. And they would not believe that Christ had risen until he met with her. And he said to her, go and speak to my brethren and tell them they are my brethren yet. And he said her words spoken to him and the air of sweetness took him by the heart. So he wrote, his brethren yet, thought I. And may I think that Christ will own me as one of his brethren yet? It was to me as life from the dead. Christ's words and his message to Mary are given to pull them back from despair and to call them to an even higher relationship. His Father is their Father. His God is their God. Hebrews 2 verse 9, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And here is the stunning gospel truth that we learn through the resurrection, that through faith in Jesus Christ, God's people gain entry into the very family of God. You are a child of God. How awesome is that? Romans 8, verse 15 to 17, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. And so as we we close now, being co-heirs of the Father through the resurrection, Christ's joy must be our joy. His greatest purpose to bring the Father glory becomes our highest aim. And so if this passage speaks of our hope and our belonging, it certainly speaks of our commission. Our commission. We are commissioned to go as Mary with this one message in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. When hope and belonging are yours through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then that certainly must also come with mission. It must be followed by mission. From eyes that are full of tears to eyes that have seen the risen Lord, from hopeless love to this joy-filled declaration, I have seen the Lord. Mary becomes, as one scholar has pointed out, the apostle to the apostles. And so our lives as well are called to reflect this truth. I have seen the Lord. Not physically as Mary had, but certainly in the sense that we have tasted and know that He is good. We have faith in Him and in His resurrection that is evident in our lives. We agree with Peter. We understand what he means when he says in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Have you seen the Lord today? Has He called you by name? And would we know it if we spent any amount of time with you? Would we know that you have been with the Lord? In the biography called Dr. Sangster, Paul Sangster writes, about his father, W.E. Sangster, who died of throat cancer. And he had given, on his last Easter Sunday morning, he, he gave a note to his son, and his son writes about this note. He woke up that morning and was completely unable to utter a word. And so he writes to his son, how grievous to wake up on Easter Sunday morning and not be able to shout, Christ is risen. And then he adds, How much more tragic to wake up on Easter Sunday morning and not want to shout, Christ is risen. Is that the message of your life? He is alive, and I know the Lord, and you can know Him too. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so grateful for these accounts that reveal what your resurrection means to us, that reveal what they meant for the the first disciples. You have conquered the grave and you are alive and so because of that we have hope today. Whatever we are struggling with, all our sorrow, God, we know that we have hope because of what you've done. I pray, Father, that you would restore our hearts to this hope. Give us again the sense of belonging. And as we leave from here, Father, I pray that you would send us on mission. That those who know us would know that we have met with you, that we know you and love you. Help us to feel 
the urge that others would see and know it too. Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we go on this journey after the resurrection. I pray more and more that you'd help us to, to see and to know Jesus is alive. And Father, if there are any in the room today who have not ever really known, have not ever really heard you call them by name, I pray that you would do it even now. I pray that you would call them by name, that they would hear your voice in a way that is familiar, that they would know that they belong to you because of what you have done for them on the cross. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.